0: You're listening to Reach, Teach, Talk with Nat Ding.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Reach, Teach, Talk. We are moving into August and we are now anticipating the beginning of a school year, which for many of us is going to require opening up a remote classroom, teaching remotely, teaching through the screens. And as we learned last spring, it is a completely different experience to be teaching uh, in real life, in a real brick-and-mortar classroom, a classroom where you're sharing space together, you can sense the biorhythms. You can, you know, you can walk over to a student's desk where a student might be spacing out, and just kind of tap the desk and just kind of get that student back to paying attention. You look at the body language. You, you can, you can just see which students are engaged, which students aren't. On Zoom, uh, you know, when we're talking about synchronous learning, uh, whether it's Zoom or any other platform, it's more challenging to see that, to sense that, to certainly to keep the barometer of the classroom. Um, you know, in, in one scope as a teacher, so we are anticipating, and, and teachers, we are we are rightfully trepidatious about moving into this new school year in a remote fashion. Yet, all hope should not be lost. We there are plus sides to this idea of starting remotely. Uh, plus sides that go beyond the obvious safety concerns, which are why we are we are starting school remotely for many of us. Um, But the trepidation is warranted as well, and I have two guests today that are just, I'm just so incredibly excited to introduce and to glean their wisdom from, because their work focuses on the connection between emotions and cognition in learning, and I bet if you're, you know, I bet those of you out there who are teachers might be thinking to yourselves, yeah, you know, I might be able to, you know, come up with an incredible lesson plan that might work even asynchronously. And, and, you know, for students who are motivated, they might be able to really just do the work and kind of do school. And I'm not worried about those students. What I'm worried about is how am I going to connect with them emotionally? How am I going to get them to emotionally invest themselves in my class? I mean, for example, 25% of LAUSD students last spring were not showing up for school. Now, there are many reasons behind this, and, and we can have a whole other episode. In fact, we had an episode earlier with Dr. Tyrone Howard talking about the inequality, the gap um, that, that's been recognized by this move to remote, because frankly, not every student's got access to technology. Not every student is working in an environment where they are alone and safe to really, really learn. Um, many students have parents who are not at home or who are working from home, uh, younger siblings to, to watch over. So all of these factors or don't, just don't even have the hardware to begin with. Here, we're talking about, this is going to be an episode that's going to be focused on teachers who are teaching students remotely. It's not going to be about the, 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 the economic gap, the, social, the achievement gap. It's going to be instead about how we can work with our students in a remote way, taking advantage of the neuroscience that confirms that learning is cognitive and emotional. And the guest that we have today, Dr. Mary Helen Imerdino Yang from the University of Southern California. She's a social effective neuroscientist and human development psychologist who studies social emotional and self-awareness across cultures, social emotional connections to cognition, to resilience, to morality and implications and their implications for education. She is currently, she she has been for a while now, a professor of education, psychology and neuroscience. At the University of Southern California, um, her book, by the way, "Emotions, Learning, the Brain," five six years ago, had such a huge effect on my work uh, in relational teaching and and working with schools on strengthening the student teacher connection and the collegial connection among schools. This idea that learning is informed by both emotion and cognition has just stuck with me, and I think it sticks sticks with all of us educators on an intuitive level. Yet Mary Helen's work has been able to confirm the science behind it, and we are. All of us just so incredibly grateful for it. And then my second guest is Dr. Rebecca Gottlieb, who is just gotten just published her or is, is just finished her dissertation. Um, is titled a biopsychosocial investigation of adolescents' social emotional meaning making. And Dr. Gottlieb was working with uh, Dr. Imerdino Yang at USC, and she is uh, absolutely somebody. Well, I'm just gonna break the secret here Rebecca was also a student of mine back when she was in eighth grade so when we're talking about emotions and cognition Rebecca feel free to share any anecdotes you might remember uh, that might have worked or not worked with you when you were a student in my class or otherwise but it's such a pleasure to have you as well on the show and um, it's such a pleasure to have both of you so welcome to reach teach talk and I'm looking forward to a discussion about how we can use the remote uh, teaching platform here in a way that doesn't restrict the emotional uh, component of of learning. Basically, what do we know about the connection of emotions and cognition? Just a simple 101 as it pertains to learning, thanks to science, and thanks to your research.
2: All right, I'll jump in. Well, thank you, Nat, for inviting me and Rebecca. And congratulations again, Rebecca, on successfully defending your dissertation a few weeks ago. It's so exciting. yeah, I mean, I think what our work has been showing and, and other people's work as well is that, you know, it's impossible for the brain to think about anything deeply or to really remember things that are not connected to each other and that about which you've had kind of no emotional, you know, reaction. The, the way the nervous system has been evolved to function basically capitalizes on efficiency, right? You want to remember and think about things that matter and not notice or remember or think about things that don't. So you don't use up your cognitive capacity on stuff that's irrelevant. And yet our education system so often kind of forgets that the reason we think at all and the reason we, we remember things is, is actually because we care about them. We come to understand them in a way that actually has emotional meaning for us and that connects somehow to who we are, uh, to what, how we think about the world, to the ways we understand things that make us, makes us feel powerful, like we understand and can analyze something and see something that um, isn't obvious when you first look, right? And that that is sort of the purpose of education, being able to engage in deeper analysis, deeper understanding, prediction, um, um, you know, synthesis of what you've already seen and making connections across different domains that you've noticed. that That's what really feels so motivating to people when they're learning. And um, and so that really speaks fundamentally to the close interconnection between emotion and cognition. I mean, the way the way we often think about this is that, you know, emotion and cognition are kind of, from a scientific perspective, um, separate in that you can you can examine them separately as different dimensions of the thought process um but in a real person they're not separate things they're they're completely intertwined with one another they're kind of two dimensions of the thought process and they always co-occur um in normal health and you never split them apart um and the reason we don't often understand them that way is because we we think about, well, what is cognition capable of when emotion is kind of held constant and what is emotion do when cognition is sort of held constant, right? But that's, that's a scientific, you know, um, kind of exercise in controlling the way things are, are being looked at. That's really not reflective of the dynamic ways in which people think cognitively and emotionally all the time. Um, in our in our daily lives and around which our our complete neurology and and physio, ph- you know physiological health are are organized.
1: It's, it's, it's fascinating that it's, it's concurrent cognition and emotions are concurrent is what you're what you're saying here, right? So like, and if you really think about it, you know I'm looking outside on a view here. I'm looking at a river, um, you know, across above my screen here. Um, and looking at some boats going by on the river. And I'm, as you're talking, Mary Helen, I'm totally 100% focused on what you're saying. But I'm also thinking to myself, as I'm really tracking my narrative, wow, that's a really pretty boat out there. Or wow, you know, the leaves are looking really green now. It must be July turning into August. Um, it was more brown here before. Like, so there, there is kind of always this running, it seems like this running subjective interpretation of the world around us. And what we're trying to do in, in, in effective teaching, right, is to apply those thoughts into a sense of ownership um, around what we're learning around the content. Is that, is that kind of right?
2: Yeah, that's right. Ownership and also that it really just um, makes a big difference to what what you bother to notice, so to speak, neurologically. Like you're, you're noticing the boats going by and the leaves outside. You, you weren't noticing the handle on the window opener, right? Or the, um, the paint on the edge of the sill or something like that, which, different. you know, isn't very interesting. Um, but if, if your goal were different... Right. If you were trying to think about maintenance of your house or something right now, then then those might have been the things you notice and you completely forget about the trees on the outside because our thinking is motivated. We, we only think about things that we have a reason to think about.
1: Things you have a reason to think about. So, Rebecca, feel free to jump into this, because I'm wondering if this kind of is, is moving into this idea of making meaning from the things you're thinking about. The, this idea of, uh, I, I, yeah, this idea of, of having both a cognitive and an emotional uh connection to what is what what the what the content is about is being learned
0: yeah absolutely thanks Matt um, I think that's definitely the case when we're thinking about how you know in this new climate we're going to build um, emotional connections with with our students I think that what Mary Helen's saying about this intimate entwinement between emotion and cognition suggests that um, the personal connections that we need to build with students aren't separate from the process of helping them um, learn the content that we want them to learn. These two things um, go together, and um, that should feel um, a little bit freeing for teachers as we think about how to connect um, in this new and remote space. So it's not necessarily the case that we need time um, that's just devoted to fun, get to know you stuff. Um, Getting to connect and and know and build relationships with students um, can actually help happen um, especially effectively when we do that in the context of um, engaging with them around content that um, we notice captures their interest or um, creating opportunities for them to really dive deep into content areas that, um, that they want to explore that feel relevant um, and, and timely.
1: That's great Rebecca. So, so going a little bit deeper on this this idea of making meaning or this as Mary Helen uh, coins the term meaning making and that's also part of your dissertation here, Rebecca. Um, it's it's almost a teacher's job or maybe an art of an excellent gifted teacher to be able to to, to to be able to provide space for every student individually to find meaning in the content that they are learning. Taking a step back from that, It seems to also imply that teachers, it's almost, it is more important to make those connections with your students from day one, right? To really learn what makes each individual student tick and then be able to use that. Part of the fun, I'm remembering back when I was teaching, part of the fun actually of my, of being a teacher was finding ways to make the, in my case, I was teaching literature, uh, make make the, the literature connect with. Um, each student individually, knowing that they're not all the same. So I guess, uh, let's move into then. Another question I have then for, e- for either of you is, as you move into the remote world, how, what, if, what, what can you both share about the difference between teaching through a screen? Is this possible? Because we're missing so much, but, but, but are we missing everything? Is, is this meaning-making and is this ability of a teacher to make make meaningful the content through knowing students individually, possible in the remote classroom? And how would you, and if yes, how would you suggest that teachers do this?
0: Uh, I can get us started. I I think um, what's important to keep in mind is that um, just like you were saying, you know, about having this narrative that's going on behind the screen um, while listening to the, you know, the, conversation we're having, um, it's important to bear in mind that the meaning-making process is always ongoing. Um, That Whether or not uh, teachers are taking an active hand in structuring that process, young people are always um, dynamically and subjectively building interpretations of the experiences that they're having and they can do so in a more or less adaptive way. So um, our goal in person or remotely is to um, help shape that process so that it's going to occur in a way that's really adaptive for young people. Um, and so you ask about how we do that in a in a remote context and you know certainly there are, are challenges um, as we transition this way. Um, for one, um, with screens there's this constant temptation to flit from one app to the next and move back and forth and and not fully focus on on um, what's going on in front of you Um, and that can be a problem because that that means maybe less opportunity to step back and reflect um, to to um, you know going back to eighth grade uh, um, literature class with you to kind of climb in to quote Harper Lee climb into the skin of someone else and um, and move around in it um, when we're when we're engaging in this more flitting from one thing to the next way it's harder to have opportunities for that reflection so as we think about transitioning remotely one move may be to um, Uh, create space and and structured ways to help young people understand how to still engage in this reflective process when um, Maybe when they stepped away from the screen So we provide opportunities in front of the screen and then and then provide structure for how they might do that separate from us asynchronously.
1: That, just before we move on to uh, another question or follow up here, I love that uh, you, you just gave such a beautiful rationalization for why teachers on day one would want to make it very clear to their students, you know, to not allow themselves to be distracted by the temptation of, you know, I always used to joke that um, when we started with laptops in the classroom and, and internet connectivity in the classroom, you know, I, was, I just still can't quite get over the idea that we basically put a television with a billion channels on it. In front of every single student at their desk, and expect them to pull out to *Kill a Mockingbird* and read about, you know, focus when right there in front of you is the world. And yet, it's so important to find a way to have the focus be on the one task at hand. And also, that helps to bond the class together as well. I would imagine is if we are if we know that we're all focused on the content, um, and we're not flitting around, uh, then we can we can build a classroom ethos based on the content. Does that seem to make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, and then moving on, I'm curious about, uh, and, and maybe uh, Mary Helen, you can, you can pick up on this, this, this idea of space and time that we've been talking about. Um, is there any advice you would give toward a framing of how teachers, if, 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 if teachers could look at time in the remote classroom, perhaps differently than they look at the concept of time in the brick and mortar classroom. And what I'm getting at is um, there seems to be an advocacy toward project-based learning, more, um, more project-based learning, more, t- more broader kind of um, assignments, broader uh, themes um, that 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 make that lend themselves better to meaning-making in this remote classroom. Is there anything you might be able to say about perhaps how teachers could use this remote teaching and the concept of time?
2: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And and I think this push toward project-based learning, it can be done well or less well, right? Yes. But I, I think what people are recognizing there is that effective learning is not about, um, you know, memorizing and recalling curated information that somebody else gave you, right? Um, and so this kind of, you know, speaks to a lot of what teachers have been hearing about and seeing from the quote-unquote, you know, science of learning, right, or learning sciences, um, which is mostly about how to help people effectively recall stuff after they've "quote unquote" learned it, right? Um, and and what you're really getting at, and what Rebecca's work really gets at, is that you know effective learning is about constructing narratives in your mind about what stuff means and how it goes together, and what it means for you, and what kinds of dispositions it helps you develop toward thinking as you and go forth and engage with other uh, with other kinds of uh, activities in the world that aren't to kill a mockingbird, right? Um, which I also loved reading in eighth grade. Um, and so I, I think, with relation to time, what we need to understand is that in, in the brain, um, you know, and this kind of makes sense, right, when you think about it, but you can almost think about the brain as kind of, you know, the big networks of the brain, the big sort of modes of thinking as kind of like a seesaw, you know, where you've got the pivot of the seesaw in the middle um, is, is what we call salience detection. It's, it's, you know, it's kind of like what matters to me right now. Right. And what can I notice in the world? And of course you develop skills for learning how to notice. And that's a big piece of what education does, right. It's teaching you, you know, it's, An effective teacher is helping you engage in certain hypothetical thoughts, right, where you're climbing into, you know, the skin of somebody else and moving around in it as a way to learn how to notice what matters in that person's life so that you're kind of um, making a more nuanced and differentiated ability to start to discern the things that you ought to be paying attention to that you might before have missed, right, that may not be directly visible under your nose, right? Um, and, uh, and, and we think of that as, as kind of the, the, um, the impetus for thinking it's kind of the driver that gets you to kind of ramp up your physiological sort of state and attentional state. And then you can sort of shift that attentional state kind of in two big modes that trade off with one another. One is this kind of, um, Uh, uh, deep dive into a task oriented focus where you really sort of shift your attention and and in our cultural context, narrow your attention, but that's not true everywhere. There's other kinds of cultural contexts, like indigenous Mayan people, right? Where they, you know, these things are very culturally shaped. This is to say they, they show a much sort of lighter touch um, kind of attention. Right. But in, in our culture, we really privilege this sort of narrow focused, uh, you know laser attention on one uh task uh and and on completing that task in a kind of you know organized way uh without um you know disruption without sort of distraction um Or, and, right, you can then, when you notice you need to, and this is about self-regulation and executive capacity and meta-awareness, right, which you want your students to be developing through their learning opportunities, um, you can sort of decide or notice that it's maybe time to step back and shift into a more reflective, integrative mode where you construct this broader meaning, the kind of meaning that Rebecca's been studying, right? Where you start to build a story out of all of this and apply it to other things and uh, sort of feel it on the substrate of your more internal conscious self, right? Like the psychological implications of it and not just the direct uh, physical world implications or action-oriented implications of things. Um, And that side of education we often um, traditionally have underprivileged because we, we value um, the task-oriented focus that gets things done, gets things recalled on cue quickly. Um, and now we're recognizing that, in fact, the mind and the brain aren't well served by a, a hyper-focus on productivity like that, um, that the purpose of education is really to develop the whole person uh, not just to uh, quote unquote learn stuff, right? Um, and and so we want as teachers to really be mindful about helping students um, effectively move themselves, appropriately move themselves from a task oriented focus, you know, to noticing that they need a task oriented focus. They should dig in and work to noticing when, ooh, maybe there's something deeper here. Maybe my essay topic is going in a wonky direction. Maybe there's another idea I had. Maybe I should show it to somebody else, right? Maybe my math problem, I'm kind of on the wrong track. I need to step back and think, like, wait, wait a minute. What kind of math equation is this really? Oh, it's the same thing as this other, right? Or, um, you know, it's, 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 it's adding a negative. Same thing as subtracting, you know, whatever that is, right, that for your developmental level when you're kind of, noticing the bigger pattern you need to kind of pull yourself back for a moment and think and and people tend to avert their eyes close their eyes like you know they make all these faces that look like somebody quote-unquote thinking right you know that has been you know celebrated by artists for you know lots of time Um, and so this is a little bit harder to do intuitively I think in an online platform when we're not used to it first of all because one of the ways that we trigger task focus versus a more inward-focused meaning-making mode is through um, subtle patterns of eye gaze, right? And you don't have the benefit of those on a Zoom platform, for example. Um, You don't make direct eye contact with people. Um, And so that makes it more difficult um teachers can it's exhausting but i've been working on doing this my sister's a psychiatrist who's been doing telehealth and she's been working on staring at the little white light (laughs) right because um that feels to the person like you're looking straight at them which is encouraging of them engaging deeply with you um and uh so that's one thing you can do and another thing is that it's 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 okay to have moments of silence right where people are kind of reflecting or thinking or stopping to kind of reorient themselves to the problem space. And that might be more comfortable or intuitive in an in-person setting. Although even there, oftentimes teachers feel like they need to fill the time, right? Which is kind of the point of these big project oriented focus is that you let kids fill the time as compared to you sort of directing the time in this kind of ping pong back and forth answers and questions kind of mode. Um, uh, And so, uh, you know, kind of letting people sit and establishing a culture of, of online interaction with your class where it's okay to step back and think for a moment. Um, and not every moment needs to be filled with somebody saying something, um, is, is another just sort of like, Oh yeah, well that's obvious, but you know, people don't always think of it. Um, and then another thing is just to recognize the, um, the sort of physical demands, the perceptual demands that an online platform makes on the nervous system and on your eyes and your visual system, right? It's exhausting to look at a screen for too long. Um, And so it's really important that in that sense, we attend to time and keep things um, manageable just in terms of the, you know, the, the perceptual demands for having to stare at a screen at a particular distance for so long. That's, that's difficult to do. So, you know, I think in some ways you were looking for opportunities here like i think one of the opportunities is for is for us as teachers to become um more aware of and more strategic about the ways in which we manage the time we have together with our classes so that we utilize the direct time together interacting um in a, a way that promotes the kinds of things that you can uh that you can build better by ramping off each other's thinking and reflecting on each other's uh you know assertions and um sort of building on one another so that you build that kind of social cohesion but then leaving people you know the students with some kind of salience you know salient prompt that drives them to want to then step back and spend their off-screen time engaging deeply in reflecting on something um and then coming to some kind of understanding or conceptualization or narrative about it, or, which might be a question, right? Coming to be aware of like, well, the fundamental issue for me is X and I hadn't really thought about X before, right? And then uh, bringing this class back together around then presenting and sharing those things so that you, um, you know, let people's eyes rest when the task is to reflect and um, use the on-screen time for active discussion where people are sort of engaging and making meaning one another with one another and kind of uh, taking turns in the conversation. So that, um, just to say, be mindful of the amount of time that you keep people directly engaged with the screen. Um, but, uh, and that means being really strategic about what the face-to-face time is good for and and what kids can be actively encouraged to do if you set them up. When they're off screen, so you know, leaving them with something interesting to read or think about, or a, or, a, or, a, or a, a, a you know a, a, a conversation starter that they really need to reflect on in order to be able to come back and share what they think with their classmates and build something bigger than they could do alone together.
1: Dr. Imadu Yang, yeah, you are you are you are manipulating time and space in that response beautifully, and 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 there's so much hope in that in that depiction of how we can actually use this remote teaching platform as a way to actually be quiet, to be reflective, to listen. We, I just did a three part series about listening and the difference between listening and hearing and how to truly listen is an energy um, that, you know, it requires a strength, a strength of focus and a comfort with quiet a comfort with just, and, and, and it could be easier and it, it could be easier in this way. I, I love what you were saying about, you know, start the class with, you know, it, 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 you know the, the the dialogue and the conversation, and you know, bring the class together through some thoughtful discussion. Have it be okay that a student's not looking at the screen all the time. My gosh, that is exhausting. Like, let them do the thinker pose, right? Like, just have it be, um, you know, listen, and then you you have a prompt that will that they can then on their own time work on um, individually or in you know partners or whatever online. But just have it be this not so much of a rush rush focus, like in, in my mind, quantitatively, I'm thinking about standard 45 minute periods, nine periods a day, boom, 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 that we have in a traditional school. If schools can be creative and flexible with this time and space to maybe have like, I don't know, like a whole bunch of 90 period, 90 minute periods where only the first 15 or 20 are synchronous like this, but then you can go off and do your individual work and then come back to the class at the end with Some sort of synthesis focused um, realignment before, you know, before going to the other class. I I just, there's so much that I love about that um, depiction. And I think that that is a a way to mold kind of the the possibility of what, what school can be. Um, yeah, um, for sure. Experience.
2: And, 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 and don't forget the simple tools that we have on these devices. I mean, I know a lot of kids don't have devices, don't have internet, right? That's another level of problem. But if your kids do, and they do have a quiet place to try to work, I mean, I think using the devices to, um, to really focus on their own experiences now in the pandemic, or their experiences of a novel or something like that, can be really powerful so there's no reason why we all have to be uh looking at each other together for your reflection like maybe people, maybe one assignment is to go off and think about what you want to say and then record a, a um an audio recording of your reflection for your classmates and then you share those with one another and you listen to them on your own time quietly and then you come back or you know maybe you know you know what i mean so you're saving people's eyes but you're also teaching them how to listen right so you're You're thinking about how the medium, how you can train up people to be able to effectively use this medium and to also develop the disposition to use what you've got here and now and to notice, right, to be mindful of the way things are right now as a really interesting um, time period and condition. I mean, people have been... I was just reading about a, a, a scientist who's making these soundscape recordings all over the U.S. right now, right during the pandemic, and the and the kinds of birds, the kinds of things that you can hear, right, that are going on, even the children playing in the background or whatever, you know, and kind of making those as a project that just teaches you how to listen and notice. If if you notice, for example, that your kids are having a hard time really tuning in, then teach them to tune into their world with a project that actually starts to make connections between. The conditions of the pandemic say and and the ways things sound around them and then you're both teaching them to analyze and to notice and to present things in a way that they can share with other people and you know those kinds of interesting assignments can i think really present opportunities for kids to to develop the habit of thinking about what is here and now that's interesting what is here and now that I could use my scholarly skills to understand better or to give insight into how could I help what is there what could I do that would that would help others understand or that would um, help others feel better or do better during this difficult time and and trying to shift your curriculum so that you can have an element of that active Here's what I see, and here's something I think I could do that would help shed light on that, or would just help people notice what I notice, or would, um, you know, uh, help people feel better or be better um, than they would have been without me here. Uh, I think is a really important disposition to build in our students, and and to use our our classroom content, our traditional disciplinary content and skills that we want kids to develop. Right. Um, in these uh you know t- to to actually make sense of what's going on now is a really great lesson for students also about you know how real scientists real historians real uh writers and authors think about the world they don't wait for something interesting to happen so they can write a novel they notice what's interesting in in what is already happening that other people may not have seen the way they did and they present that and so i think um you know teaching kids that that's sort of the disposition to build as a scholar is a really great lesson that this pandemic is offering us.
1: Before I get to Rebecca with a final uh, question, I, I, I'm just thinking about a conversation I had with this brilliant dance teacher yesterday. She's a high school dance teacher, middle school and high school dance teacher. And she told me, you know what my first lesson is going to be for my kids? And I was like, what? You know, I'm just picturing her. Film yourself dancing in front of your garage. No, she said, my first assignment is going to be to have them film just a 15 second clip of dance. Observe dance in the natural world and I was like what do you mean she's like no like just look at the leaves outside or look at the ripples of water in the on the, on the lake look at the you know the, the, the dance could be found in all different ways your dog you know running outside letting a dog out like where do we see dance in the real world and I was like that is brilliant because it's, it's, it and it reflects everything that you just shared I think Mary Helen this this for applied, sure right mm-hmm um,
2: yeah. yeah, what is dance for? Why do you learn dance? That's way more important than actually being able to dance, right? You, you can't really learn how to dance well until you understand what dance does for you, right? What kind of tool it is? And she's helping them notice that first, and then they're motivated to actually learn how to move or wh- whatever. You know, I'm not a dancer, so I'm not an expert of that. But like, why would you bother working on how to move unless you actually had some intuitive sense of what it accomplishes to do it this way?
1: Exactly. Brilliant. Rebecca, um, final, final question as we wrap this up is, uh, is, is well, first of all, anything you might want to add, first of all, about what Mary Holland has been sharing about meaning making in and, and the remote classroom. And, and also, I just found a really interesting part of your dissertation is where you mentioned Viktor Frankl and uh, his, you know, the search for meaning. And I didn't know if you found, if there's any way you can kind of weave that into kind of a final um, statement about, you know, giving hope toward this teaching in the remote in the remote classroom.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for asking. I um, uh, have been very affected by Viktor Frankl's work. I I just first in response to what Mary Helen's saying, I wanted to draw out a few of the benefits that really that I heard really stand out in her comments. first this idea that um, this gives us an opportunity to kind of address this junk drawer problem that we've had in our curriculum for so long so we just put stuff in and in and in and we add we want people to learn more and more but then you end up with like a a, ju- a drawer full of junk where you can't find anything or know you know how to use it you have that old key and you don't know what it opens. Um, Mary, Mary,
1: sorry to interrupt but Mary Helen talks about squirrels collecting their nuts
0: <laughs> right, like
1: just collecting and collecting, and then suddenly I have so much. What am I going to do with this?
0: Exactly. So what she's saying gives us an opportunity to address that issue and instead pull out um, a few select, um, you know, challenges or ideas, um, issues that can really appeal to students um, and allow them to dive deeply in a way that's meaningful. And, um, and in a way that's, that can be personalized and individualized. So we create a broad space um, and then allow students to um, take it in a direction that's appropriate and interesting for them um, and in a way where they'll be able to make meaning of it um, not, only the, not only in terms of how they understand the content, but also in how they understand what it means for them and for their society and who they want to be and where they want um, things to go in their communities. Um, so it's it's this um, this more focused approach this more individualized approach and then also I think what we heard and what Mary Helen was saying is that um, this opportunity to kind of loosen the reins a bit and and um, think differently um, with kids having more space to um, make their learning their own also allows us to um, think in a more interdisciplinary way so um, she's talking about you know, or your example with dance, like this combination of um, studying dance, but also looking in the natural world, for example, Um, or Mary Helen's um, example with um, creating, um, you know, notes about uh, things that you're observing related to other problems. It's this, um, allows us to think about problems across disciplines. um, And in so doing, you know, we, Are addressing them in a way that's more authentic that's um, aligned with how these problems actually exist in the real world and um, and that's something we haven't always done well in school things have been so divided by topic area um, but that's not consistent with the way that we need young people to address address those problems um, with the futures that we want to prepare them for Um, and so when we kind of let kids Take these projects in the directions that interest them, I think we'll see a natural um, move towards thinking about them in more interdisciplinary ways and um, to really great effect. I think we've seen recently so many inspiring examples of young people who um, have really made change um, and been able to address major societal issues. And right now, as we're staring down the barrel of at least two um, huge issues in our society right now, giving kids opportunities to authentically engage with those and, and make progress um, towards them and, and be a voice for change, like like we've seen other people um, like Greta Thunberg and Emma Gonzalez and Malala do, um, can create a really great opportunity, not only for those young people's learning, but actually for all of us to benefit um, in society. And so to relate back to what you were saying, um, you brought up Viktor Frankl. I think that this is, um, that's exactly, you know, this connects so well. Viktor Frankl said, um, I'm paraphrasing, I think he says approximately, um, people can survive any what if they have a why, um, and so you know we're all facing um, a new a new what right now. Um, we're all facing a new environment, and of course there are um, big differences in what that means for people, um, inequities in how, in who and how we're affected by um, this this crisis um, and and not only in terms of our physical circumstance but also in terms of how we make meaning of it. But the way that we get through this new what is um, by focusing on um, the possible whys. So um, if we can um, help our young people imagine the ways that they can contribute in their communities and in society right now um, that can be one step towards um, helping their learning but more importantly um uh helping kind of build a a holistic um uh sense of of who i am in this world and how i can um be fulfilled in it and and contribute to others to to make it better
1: beautifully said thank you dr gottlieb and dr imberdino yang any final statements about this
2: yeah i mean i think one It was great what you said, Rebecca, and I think just um, one, uh, you know, one question you can ask yourself for any lesson that you're teaching, you know, we always should be doing this, but now even more um, is, um, you know, how does this lesson, how does this activity, how does this assignment, how does this content um, and engaging with this content in this way um, develop my students, right? How does it develop them as people? What kinds of Capacities—is it helping them grow? Um, And if you can't answer that question, then you really need to think hard about what kind of content and why you're teaching it that way, right? Because any content um, that's worth learning and uh, is is engaging with it is teaching you how to think in particular ways or what to notice in particular ways. That um, is really growing your capacity as a thinker and as a human being and as a citizen. And um, if you don't understand how it's doing that, then you're not teaching it in a way that's gonna be effectively growing your students. And we really need to stop and uh, deconstruct the junk drawer metaphor, I love that, right? Um, You know What goes in there and why? Because you could probably build some really great stuff out of the stuff that's in that drawer, but um, if the curriculum's all about just putting it in and taking it back out again, that doesn't facilitate you making an invention that's actually gonna be useful
1: meaning-making, uh, uh, capacity, capability, purpose, um, this idea of a narrative, of, of, of creating your narrative, of having space to know thyself, to find the why and the what, to really use Open the School Year, looking at the remote as an opportunity to reflect and to, put, to really put, shine a spotlight on the purpose of reflection and learning. The purpose of making meaning the purpose of connecting emotionally to the content um and knowing that cognitive and emotion is concurrent um it's not one or the other which is what your research has been confirming for 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 a while now um i want to thank both of you so much for being on the show dr mary helen and yang dr rebecca godley as i've been speaking with you the river in front of me has actually it's fascinating it's just absolutely gone to there's no ripples there hasn't been a single boat in the past 10 minutes so it is a clear mirror and it is reflecting the trees, reflecting the marshland out here. And it's just so symbolic of this conversation and the time after this conversation that I'm gonna to use to reflect on what we've talked about today. So let's all encourage teachers, teachers out there listening, um, you know, take the time, if, you, if your school allows you, please capitalize on that. Take the time for reflection, take the time for medic, allowing for metacognition and really allow your students to construct their own narrative around what they're learning. It takes time, it takes space, but look at the possibilities that can come out of that based on this discussion. Thank you both so much for being on the show today.
2: Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for having us. You've been listening to Reach Teach Talk with Nat Damon. If you'd like to recommend a guest for a future episode, you can send your suggestion or questions to nat at reachacademics.com.